Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. On 12th of June 1987, American President Ronald Reagan stood at the wall that since 1961 had divided West and East Berlin and issued a stern call to the Soviet Union. Now the Soviets themselves may in a limited way be coming to understand the importance of freedom. We welcome change and openness for we believe that freedom and security go together. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, tear down this wall. Two years later, after a wave of revolutions in nearby Eastern Bloc countries, euphoric crowds of East Germans crossed and climbed onto the wall, an act that paved the way to German reunification. So how did Berlin come to be divided by a wall? How did East Germans try to get across? And how did the Berlin Wall finally come down? History Hits' Laura McMillan has been asking the big questions to Dr. Katrin Schreiter at King's College London. This is How and Why History. Katrin, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. What was the situation like in Berlin at the end of the Second World War? Berlin was the site of one of the last battles in the European arena of the Second World War. And from mid-April until first the 2nd of May 1945, there was still fighting ongoing attack that had been prepared by extended periods of bombing and shelling. So that meant that there was a lot of destruction going on and even people, you know, locals couldn't even recognize the streets anymore because of that amount of rubble everywhere. So people were disoriented, starving, some of them. And what was left of this battle also shaped how the street scenery looked like in the following months. So what we see is brigades of so-called rubble women dominated the streetscape in the city. They were conscripted to manually collect and clean bricks for rebuilding and to move heavy rubble, clear the streets and the real estate for a new beginning. The situation was dire, there wasn't enough food for everyone. There was rationing implemented by the military occupation regime and many tried to add to their meager 
diets with allotment gardening or making forbidden trips to the countryside to get a little bit of produce or actually go to the black market and kind of pawn off the last family silver for a little bit of food. So that was the material situation when it comes to relations with the occupiers. It was, of course, a tense time. Looting and rapes and similar violent behavior um, that we see very often, the end of violent conflicts, made this process a very painful one. And how different were the material standards of living in the western zones of Berlin and those for residents in the Soviet zone? In the beginning, they were quite similar, but after the first couple of years, the attitude of the occupiers changed. So we have four occupiers of Germany at that time, the United States, Great Britain, the Soviet Union and France. And they divided the territory up amongst themselves and they divided up Berlin. So in the Western zones, the attitude changed, basically stabilized the situation there after the war. In the East, the Soviet Union continued to be quite harsh, the population, and also having made an enormous effort during the Second World War, the Red Army had the highest losses. Um, the Soviet Union was the country most affected by the actual warfare. They also didn't have as much to give and to provide to their zone of responsibility. So it was quite a difference after the initial years. So we see this changing especially after 1946-47, the so-called turnip winter, when a lot of Germans were quite hungry and attitudes in the West shifted and an economic recovery plan was created for the West. And so in that context, did residents from East Berlin begin leaving for the West in large numbers and what kind of people were crossing over? Yes, there are a couple of factors that made people leave um, the eastern zone of occupation. Among them, of course, also the implementation of economic and ideological policies. So there was a redistribution of land in the eastern zone of occupation. That meant that landed aristocracy was expropriated and the land was given to small-scale farmers. And there was a, a limit on the actual maximum amount of land one person could have. So these expropriated people didn't feel at home anymore in this new Germany, the Eastern Germany that was being built under socialist auspices. And many of them left. Eventually, in later years, you have the West German economic miracle starting circa from the mid-50s onwards and going quite strongly until the mid-60s with average economic growth rates of up to 8%. So that is, of course, impressive and made the West German system look attractive. But that's not the only reason why people came. So it was also persecution of people who continue to believe in religion or the ideological indoctrination of education, with which many didn't agree. They were not believing in socialism, and so they chose to leave that system behind. Then we have also the nationalization of companies, the nationalization of land, and in the countryside, a very strong revolutionary fervor in the early years of the GDR, constant campaigning, political commissars overlooking the process. And that, with 
the backing of the police. So that one could say, yeah, that there's an element of terror going on there. This was, of course, then met with the pull factors, which could range anything from having family members in the West and wanting to make sure that the family stays together, the free choice of education in the West, fresh start for expropriated land and business owners in the capitalist system, but of course also the hope for a better life in the West. You mentioned the GDR. So when exactly was the German Democratic Republic declared? And to what extent did the Soviets maintain considerable legal or administrative control over the GDR state? The German Democratic Republic was officially declared on the 7th of October 49, and this followed a period during which a constitutional assembly met. It is called the German People's Congress and had been elected earlier that year in May. It implemented a Leninist model of democratic centralism with the Socialist Unity Party at the helm of all public and economic institutions. So that basically meant that we have a de facto party dictatorship. From here on out, we might mention this party, the Socialist Unity Party, a few more times. Usually it's referred to with the German abbreviation, which is SED. Just like the Western allies, so France, Great Britain and the United States in relation to the Federal Republic of Germany, which is West Germany, short the FRG. The Soviet Union nominally occupied the GDR until German reunification. But in practical terms, both German countries were given sovereignty in the 1950s when it comes to internal institution building. But when it came to foreign policy and foreign relations, then they usually had to follow the, let's put it in a neutral way, the guidelines of the superpowers. And that especially pertained to the German-German relationship because that remained the hotspot of the Cold War in Europe until German reunification was reached and the Soviet Union collapsed a year later. Who did the initiative for constructing a wall come from? We see already in 1948 the first time the Soviet Union attempting to completely block Western access to Berlin. Uh, we have to remember that Berlin is situated in the middle of what is the Soviet zone during that time. So access to West Berlin was necessarily through a transit street or train track or waterway through East German territory or through back in 48, the Soviet zone of occupation. So. Here, that was the first time that the Soviet Union tried to block Western access and claim all of Berlin for itself. The special status of Berlin is anchored in the Potsdam Conference Agreements that were put together at the end of World War II in the summer of 1945, where the four powers had agreed to jointly occupy and administer defeated Germany. And Berlin was supposed to be that one place where all four would have to cooperate jointly. So that was the first attempt of trying to cut out the Western presence in Berlin. But the Americans very determinedly uh, established uh, air support, air bridge, and flew in anything from coal to foodstuffs to support the West Berlin population and keep their spirits strong so they wouldn't succumb to the Soviet pressures. 
This was again attempted to a certain extent more by negotiation in 1958, actually until the building of the wall by the Soviet Union. They didn't really want to put a wall up, but they tried to convince the Western allies to demilitarize Berlin and leave West Berlin. And thus meaning that Berlin could be in its entirety integrated into the GDR. But Kennedy made clear that that was one of the three principles he set out basically at the Vienna summit in the year when the war was built. That was not an option for the Western allies. So then going back to whose idea it was or who was the driving factor behind the building of the wall. Well, at that moment in 1961, it's quite safe to say it was the leader of East Germany and the first general secretary of the SED, Walter Ulbricht. He had ambitious economic plans for the GDR and this loophole of Berlin through which a lot of people could still, you know, without any problem, go to the West. That was something that he really wanted to close. When did the construction of the wall begin and how did the process of its building play out? Construction actually was kept secret. Nobody gave an official announcement before under the cover of night. It started happening on Sunday, that was the 13th of August, 1961. East Berliners basically woke up to barbed wire being stretched across the demarcation line between East and West Berlin. This manifested the division of the city quite physically. So before that day, there had been 81 crossings in the city alone and 69 were permanently closed that day. After this, we see a process of continuous fortification of this new manifested border. And there are many generations of it. The iconic fortified concrete walls that we have in our minds as the Berlin Wall, they were actually only put there in 1975. So you can see it's over decades that this process developed. These walls or these concrete walls that we have in our minds, they were actually the outer perimeter facing the west and they're about three meters 60 high and they reached into the ground for a little bit more than two meters, making it quite an obstacle in the first instance. However, it was not really directed against or meant to keep Westerners out. It was more to keep Easterners in, right? So behind this initial wall of the outside perimeter, we have an increasingly intricate system of fortifications, hurdles, the so-called death strip, which contained trip wires, vehicle blocks, area, patrolled by guard dogs, which were trained to attack, more than 300 watchtowers with armed guards, paved road for patrol vehicles, and motion sensors that stretched across a corridor that was up to 100 meter wide in terrain. And that was also carried out along any kind of waterways or sea borders. Here, they also put mats with sharp nails into the water or other obstacles that made it impossible to cross. East German troops swooped down on the border between Red Berlin and the Free City in the pre-dawn hours to close the 66 points where movement between the sectors has been relatively free. East Berliners who held coveted jobs in the West were told to stay home and the elevated trains were halted.
Mayor Willie Brandt, commenting on this latest Russian move in the War of Nerves, cautioned East Berliners against revolt, exhorting them to do nothing rash. The mayor, along with other West Berlin authorities, feels that some minor incident might give East German and Soviet troops an excuse to oppress the people further. Two battle-ready Soviet Army divisions have ringed the city to bolster the army of the East German puppet government. Meanwhile, the Allies set to work immediately to draft a strong note of protest. Even when the corridor to Berlin was blocked and the Allies resorted to the famed airlift, free movement within the city was never interrupted. The Russians have told their people that the border was closed to prevent the infiltration of agents from the West. Never a word about those who fled to the arms of freedom. Fled from the rule of guns and tanks that cast ominous shadows on the red side of freedom's border. Clearly a formidable physical obstacle, but in symbolic and ideological terms, was the Berlin Wall more than just a wall? Yes, one could say so. It uh, became symbolic in character because of just being a physical embodiment of a quite important political status quo in the Cold War. That it now really symbolized. It is part of the Iron Curtain. It made the Iron Curtain literally close down all the way, especially here the closing of the Brandenburg Gate came a symbol as closing the last door, the last pathway between East and West. In the context of the German cultural perception of it, you know, the aesthetics of barbed wire and watchtowers made many comment on it as being reminded of the concentration camps of the Nazi period. So, of course, these kinds of images within the German context were, of course, very much loaded with ideological meaning, the Cold War conflict of these two Germanys that were battling for international recognition and used any opportunity that presented itself to show that the other one was not as good or one was better in whatever area of competition they chose to be. And in this case, it's the one about guaranteeing freedoms to your citizens and the elements that are part of our modern well-being. And how did the Eastern Bloc portray the wall? They did portray it as a device to keep out fascist and militarist influence coming from the West. They literally dubbed it the anti-fascist protective wall, antifascistischer Schutzwall is the German word. And in the process of state and nation building, the SAD had always portrayed socialism in the GDR as the alternative to the capitalist liberalist order in the West, which they blamed for having brought about the political and economic instability of Germany's first democracy, the Weimar Republic, in the interwar years, which had ended with a catastrophic Hitler regime. So to them, Capitalism and fascism were two sides of the same coin. And with this kind of rhetoric around the wall, they tried to sell that to their own population. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite 
of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. For ordinary people, what were the implications of the wall if they lived and worked in Berlin? Well, for some it meant that from one day to the next they couldn't go to work anymore. So that, of course, meant a restructuring of one's life, finding new work. The good thing about the GDR is that everybody has the right to work in this socialist ideal and everybody needs to work in order to make uh, sustain the system. So for most of them, there was a quick resolution. What was especially tragic was, of course, the separation of families. And for a long period of time, a couple of years, it was almost impossible for East Germans to get permission to travel to the West. Eventually, between 63 and 66, there were some agreements that allowed mostly elderly people, pensioners, to go and visit family for important occasions such as a funeral or big anniversaries. But for the young population, the young GDR population, it was quite difficult to get an exit visa. There were nine border crossings between East and West Berlin. Who made use of these? Well, they, they've been made famous in movies and in literature, of course. A lot has happened at these border crossings. And the mix of people who used them was anything from a tourist who came out of curiosity to see real existing socialism. West Berlin also did a little bit of wall tourism to kind of show off this awe-inspiring construction of a very rigid system. We have also a lot of businessmen crossing back and forth. There were among the East Germans so-called travel cadres, so people in either important political or economic positions who were allowed to travel to the West for export, trade and other kinds of arrangements. Also, one shouldn't forget the GDR was still reliant on parts and machinery from the West to keep its own production, for example, consumer goods, but also engineering and construction sector afloat. So there was still, you know, despite the war kind of pulling down the curtain between East and West, there was still some flow of goods, people, also information. Most famously, of course, coming back to the books and the movies, Cold War spies used these crossings to go into the East, of course. And then West German schools also sent entire school classes on school trips to East Berlin. Did people also try and cross in unofficial means? During the period from 61 until 89, it's estimated that around 100,000 people tried to cross the border. And they did that in all ways, shape 
and forms. The interesting part is that every time they found a way that worked, the border regime would catch up with them and make sure that that way of escape was closed down. So we have tunnels, which were very successful in bringing people over to West Berlin. We have remodeling of cars. For example, little Volkswagen bus where the back bench is hollowed out and people kind of just scrouched down and not being detected by the border guards when Westerners drove back from East Berlin into West Berlin. We have people trying to fly over. One tragic incident was also the attempt to go with an air balloon, which crashed and caused a fatality. Then people tried to swim, kayak across the waterways. So many creative attempts. And in the beginning, it was much easier because of course, building the barbed wire fence on the surface didn't mean that all the subterranean connections had been disrupted. Because of course, until 61, East and West Berlin shared the same subway system, the same sewage system. So people in the beginning, you know, tried to get through these loopholes, but they, as I mentioned before, were increasingly closed off by the regime when they detected these kind of loopholes. And was the order to shoot anyone who attempted to defect applied? Yes, the first person shot at the wall was actually only 10 days after it was constructed on the 24th of August, 1961. And unfortunately, many followed. One of the most spectacular deaths occurred a year later in 62, where a young man, 18-year-old man, was shot and bled out, was led to die in the death strip. And West German border guards couldn't come to help him. And then his corpse was transported out by the East German border guards eventually. And on a different scale, on the geopolitical scale, how did the Berlin Wall worsen relations between the US and the Soviet Union? I think there are two points to consider here. On the one hand, the United States was not willing to let go of West Berlin, and it made it very clear to the Soviet Union. On the other hand, Berlin had been a headache for the United States when it comes to the global scale, because both superpowers at the time were in a competition for nuclear armament, an arms race, and they had gotten by the 60s to the point of mutually assured destruction. So having a situation at such a focal point like Berlin, where you had during the Berlin crisis, Soviet tanks and American tanks basically facing off along that demarcation line through Berlin, that was a danger for all humankind, basically. To have that Cold War between the two superpowers turn hot was something that Kennedy at that time, the American president, really wanted to avoid. He also had a couple of his own concerns in his own backyard with Cuba, which started to receive Soviet aid and challenged the United States in the Western Hemisphere. So we need to see the construction of the wall also in that context of the failed attempt of the base of pigs, the invasion of Cuba, an attempt to topple the Castro regime, followed a year later and also a year after the building of the wall by the Cuban Missile Crisis, which you know was another such moment where you know um, the Americans and the Soviets got to the brink of a, of a nuclear conflict. So. To a certain extent, I think the Americans were kind of relieved that the GDR, with support of the Soviet Union, had created kind of a status quo 
that at least stabilized the situation in Germany and just made sure that territorially speaking, now the relationship was clear. How did the tide turn? There are some interesting points here, internal and external factors. Obviously, in the 1980s, we do have a reform movement growing in the Eastern Bloc, especially in Poland. Eventually, also Hungary did open itself up to reforms, open up its border to Austria in 1989. And so here we have a spark of socialist reform, even mixed with a little bit of revolutionary fervor coming into East Germany. Internally, since the 19, late 1960s, um, one can observe pockets of dissidents in the GDR. So there was a lot of disillusionment with the Prague Spring in 1968 and how under Brezhnev the entire Warsaw Pact had decided to put down this reform movement there. So that was mostly East German intellectuals who were quite disenchanted with it because it showed them that there was little room for reform within socialism. Then this continued on with the 1970s detente between the East and the West kind of inscripted in the Helsinki Accords Agreement in 1975, where both sides subscribed to standards and human rights. The East German civil rights movement gained some momentum there. But it wasn't really until the 1980s that these movements, together with a very active environmentalist movement and a peace movement, kind of joined forces and started to develop a common strategy and um, network in a way that became a more sustained protest movement. And culturally, how important were musicians like David Bowie and Bruce Springsteen in efforts to ferment change for the world to come down? The Bowie concert took place in 1987 near the wall in West Berlin. And of course, East German youth got wind of it and wanted to listen to this artist who they also admired and were fans of. So about 2,000 of them came to the wall to listen to the concert. However, the East German police didn't tolerate what they saw a illegitimate, illegal um, congregation near to the wall and wanted these to move. In reaction, the group started shouting, take this wall away, take it down the wall. And that, of course, then in later years, we see that call coming up over and over again, this request to remove the barrier between East and West and allow freedom of movement. So basically seeing the Berlin Wall as that central symbol for the limitations of their freedoms, which they also perceive not only in terms of freedom of movement, but also in terms of cultural freedoms. How did these growing calls for change lead to the demolition of the wall? With the growing protest movements in 1989, we have the organization of demonstrations. They were called the Monday demonstrations. Leave it to the Germans to have one particular day in the week to plan a spontaneous demonstration. So these came about following the European picnic earlier in the summer of 1989, an incident where the Hungarian and Austrian governments had created an opportunity for East and West Europeans to meet. Some East Germans went and took that opportunity to run over to the West. 
Then we had a few months later the emigration of up to 6,000 East Germans who had made it to the West German embassy in Prague and squatted there until they were allowed to leave the Czechoslovakian Republic through to West Germany. All of this had created a mounting momentum. More and more East Germans became outspoken, joined the protest movement, joined the marches, the Monday demonstrations. The crowds were swelling across the GDR and eventually the SED realized that they had no choice but to start rethinking their approach to it. In the background, the Soviet Union had started to reform, most notably under Gorbachev with his policies of glasnost and perestroika. But Erich Honecker, who was the leader of the GDR at the time, had been reluctant to follow this reform course. So the SED pushed him from power or complimented him out. And his successor tried to manage the situation in the fall of 1989 by slowly introducing reforms, giving the people what they wanted, but still on the terms of centralized state socialism. And that backfired. So on the evening of 9th November 89, the GDR government announced a new travel regulation, which would allow East Germans to go into the West. Part of all this reformist course was also to allow more transparency and now give press conferences. They weren't very good at it, let's put it that way, or very experienced in it. And the press secretary fumbled through this notification and ended up actually not giving all the information. So it wasn't quite clear when this new regulation would take place. And he just said when he was asked by a reporter to clarify, he's like, I guess immediately. And the East Germans heard that through, among others, the West German news, which they since the German-German agreement in 72 were allowed to watch. And some, even in their pajamas, ran to the wall to check if that was true. Again, swelling crowds, more and more pressure on the border guards who could have chosen to shoot at these people. However, they chose not to. So that's the amazing part of this part of history. There was nobody of the Central Committee reachable that hour. And eventually they just let the people pass. And that was the end of the wall as we know it. How did the fall of the Berlin Wall pave the way for a German reunification then? And is there still a disparity between the East and the West of Germany? Well, I think it's important to give the credit when it comes to you know opening up a path towards German reunification to these brave people who took to the streets in 89, not knowing what to expect, maybe risking a Tiananmen Square reaction from their own government. But there was a lot of contemplation of reforming the GDR, keeping the GDR, but making it more of a socialist democratic state of sorts. These efforts were quickly marginalized because of the economic desperate state in which the GDR found itself in. It was quickly clear that it could not survive on its own. And the West German government under Helmut Kohl at the time had been you know, very generous in paying for the release, for example, for political prisoners and um, keeping the economic relationship um, intact with East Germany in order to facilitate contact between the two German states. as their West German part of reunification policy. They realized that this was an opportune moment to change strategy. 
and they just did not want to prop up the East German state financially anymore. And with that, the fate was sealed. There was not much self-determination after that point, and the course of reunification was mostly determined by West German preferences. Obviously, it was a window of opportunity that Kohl wanted to utilize. And it took, of course, the agreement of all the allies for Germany to be allowed, to be permitted to move forward. And it was about half a year of negotiations before that came true. East and West Germany started having a economic and monetary union, 1st of July in 1990, followed by the political reunification on the 3rd of October 1990, and the day before the official occupation status ended, but wasn't ratified until a year later. So theoretically, Germany was officially under occupation status until 91. Katrin, thank you. Thank you very much. How and why history? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 